Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we've had another interesting week of news items, uh, world items that we need to get to. That's true, Jimmy. Lots taking place in the world, and especially Israel this week. You know, Rick, uh, each week I try to look at a theme of the program, and really this one this week reminds me of what Paul's words were to Timothy that in the end times that there are going to be evil men and imposters and that will grow worse, and they are going to be deceiving and being deceived. But you, talking about us, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that's what we are doing today. We're helping people to understand the Word of God and what's taking place and examining the current events in the light of God's prophetic Word. Well, we need to get started, so let's get started with our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. Ken Timmerman joins us today. He's an established author and journalist and our expert when it comes to geopolitical affairs. Ken, thank you for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure to be with you, Rick. Thank you. Well, Ken, in weeks past, you have talked to us about the fog of war, and we won't really know what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine until months or maybe even years afterwards. But from your vantage point and from your analysis, how is the war going right now? What is the latest update, at least as far as your opinion? Well, we are beginning to see a little bit clearer, Rick, and some pretty surprising things have emerged, especially this week. It's clear now, Rick, that the Russians never gained air superiority and that the Ukrainian army has been holding its own in major battles in the east of the country. To the extent that Russia's said this week that they were redeploying from Kiev to the east. And that, I believe, is because they lost the battle of Kiev. So this is what it all adds up to, Rick. Putin is losing the war. This is something that was inconceivable on February 24th, or even after the first two weeks of war. But now it is becoming clear Putin is losing this war. It is now conceivable to think of a Ukrainian victory and a Russian defeat with all that that could mean for Putin's popularity and his survivability back home. Well, you and me and everybody that has been on this program and in and, and general around the world never saw this coming. Uh, I've seen some reports. The White House did say that they believe that Putin, before the war, was misled by yes-men, telling them how powerful the military was. And now, during the war, he's not getting accurate reports from the field. Well, I think that's probably true. And, and I've had this lurking suspicion in the back of my mind. And let me just be clear. This is a suspicion. This is not fact. This is my suspicion here. But I have wondered, based on what Biden has said publicly, what some of his advisors were saying publicly at the beginning of the war, they seem to have awfully good intelligence about Putin's intentions, which is absolutely the hardest thing to ever get a lock on in the intelligence world. And they seem to know what Putin was thinking. I've had the suspicion that perhaps somehow the U.S. was feeding information to Putin or was feeding information to one of Putin's closest advisors, making him believe that he could go into Ukraine, take Kiev in a couple of days and establish his own puppet government. Remember that famous scene very early in the war when uh, Zelensky is uh, one of the first times he publicly appeared in his bunker and he said, President Biden, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. And it became clear that the U.S. had offered to evacuate Zelensky and his family to allow the Russians to come in. 
And that was Zelensky's response. So I don't know what really is going on, but what's absolutely clear is that Putin believed he could take Kyiv in a couple of days. That did not happen. His big military convoy, that 40-mile-long convoy, was picked apart by Ukrainian defense forces. It looks like they, they attacked both the head of the convoy and the tail of the convoy, blocked it up, and then were taking pot shots at it for two weeks. Now the Russians saying they are, quote, redeploying and are going to move forces from the Kyiv area over to the east, to the Donbass. But military experts I've been talking to say, you know, that is not an easy thing to do. That is not something they can do quickly. And probably they're going to have to go back into Belarusia, back into Russia, reconstitute those forces, upman those units that have been decimated by the Ukrainians. And then it could take them a month to put them back into the battlefield. So uh, this war is really going in very unusual, in a very unusual direction. And Putin uh, clearly has been badly advised. So many interesting events taking place and things that we never saw coming. It does seem like there might have been some subterfuge beforehand that made us all think that different things would happen. Well, some more interesting confusion potentially coming out of the White House. The White House was put into kind of a, a reshuffling mode when President Biden said that the only acceptable conclusion was for Putin to be taken from power. And that's not necessarily our stance, is it? Well, I think that's what Biden thinks. Uh, and Biden has a reputation for shooting from the hip. This was a stupid comment Biden made, and it was pulled back immediately by his secretary of state, Tony Blinken, and by the White House. And then later by Biden himself, who told Peter Ducey, who confronted him very politely at a press conference, he said, never happened, never said it. Yes, he said it. <laughs> yes, he said it. And no amount of denials can uh, take that back. Whether he did this because he's getting old or half senile, I don't know. But I think it's clear that's what Biden himself personally believes. More unpredictable acts coming out of uh, Russia and coming out of this crisis right now. Um, and I'm very interested to get your comments on this one. Two Russian fighter jets violated Swedish airspace earlier this month, and they were equipped with nuclear weapons. Well, gee, Rick, that would be a big deal, wouldn't it? And we're just learning about this now. Apparently, the Swedes, who have been openly talking in the media about joining NATO, scrambled jets. They scrambled these jets and took pictures of this four aircraft grouping, two Sukhoi-24 attack planes escorted by two Sukhoi-27 fighter jets. And later, they revealed uh, just this week that the two attack planes, the Sukhoi-24s, were carrying nuclear weapons. Now that, I believe, is a first. I have never heard of the Russians actually conducting an incursion into Swedish air, airspace or into NATO airspace recently with live nuclear weapons on the aircraft. Clearly, that's an aim at intimidating Sweden. Uh, I think Putin is now getting worried that not only was Ukraine about to join NATO, but Sweden and Finland, and remember Finland is right on the Russian border, that they were about to join NATO as well. So his fear, this overriding fear that has been driving Putin for three decades of being encircled by NATO now seems paradoxically to be even closer to being realized because of his own actions in Ukraine. 
this also goes back to my previous question when we talk about, quote-unquote, regime change in Russia. We want to punish Russia for this incursion. We want to make sure that uh, you know we're on the right side of history here, but we also don't want to back them into a corner because there's a lot of bad things that could happen, isn't there? Of course there are. There are many bad things that could happen. Uh, Russia is a major nuclear weapons state. They have more tactical nuclear weapons than we do, and they have the, roughly the same amount, 1,700, of strategic nukes as we do. And they have a different first-use strategy. Uh, they have a doctrine of the first use of nuclear weapons. We do not. That is a very dangerous thing. Uh, I'm not saying that Putin is stable. I'm not saying that Putin is desirable. But whatever happens in the leadership in Russia is not our business. It is the business of the Russians. And I think it's a very dangerous thing for the U.S. to to uh, pretend even to get engaged in that. And that's clearly why the White House and the State Department pulled back that statement by Biden so quickly. Well, Ken, let's move over to the European Union. And they put out a statement this week and let China know that they should not interfere with the sanctions that we have put on Russia for this Ukrainian war. Well, that's what the EU said, but let's step back for just a second and look at the big picture. Uh, one of the perhaps unintended consequences, maybe it was an intended consequence of the U.S. pressure on Russia and these massive economic sanctions that are driving Russia out of the dollar-based economy is to force them into the arms of communist China. And so you have Russia and China signing uh, these trade agreements where uh, they will bypass the dollar, they will bypass the euro, euro entirely. You have Russia forcing Germany to buy natural gas using rubles. It's a special mechanism they've set up where they'll pay euros into an account with a Russian bank, and then the Russian bank will immediately transfer that into rubles and then pay uh, Gazprom or whoever is the supplier in Russia. We are, through our actions and through that economic pressure on Russia, basically creating a new economic as well as political and strategic alliance between Russia and China that will diminish the reach of the dollar-based economy. And I believe this could have really dramatic and negative uh, consequences for our financial system and for our future prosperity. As we continue to watch China's relationship with Russia, we also see that China has now a security agreement with the Solomon Islands, which pushes them into the Pacific. Well, gee, I guess I guess the United States is a little bit preoccupied these days, uh, aren't we? And we don't we're not really paying attention to what the Chinese are doing. That's right. They took advantage of the crisis in Ukraine to sign an agreement with a you know, tiny government in the Solomon Islands. Uh, by the way, that's where Guadalcanal, <laughs> the Battle of Guadalcanal took place during World War II. Uh, it's off of Papua New Guinea, a little bit north of Australia, north, uh, northeast of Australia, if you wish. Uh, and the Australians and New Zealanders are very, very concerned about this because this is out in the blue waters. This is not the coastal waters between China and Taiwan or, or even the, the South China Sea near the Philippines. This is the blue Pacific. Okay, this is the Blue Pacific. And for China to have a strategic agreement with the Solomon Islands really puts them just off the coast of Australia and New Zealand, two of our most important allies in the Pacific. Well, Ken, so many things taking place around the world today, and we do. We can't just focus on one. We have to focus on, you know, the entire world because uh, there are many people with many different motivations. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to be with us, Ken, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. 
Always my pleasure, Rick. There's always something new, isn't there? Yes. God's great, great universe here. That was Ken Timmerman. But we're going to take a break right now. When we come back, David Dolan with the Middle East News Update right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Ukrainian forces say they've retaken the city of Irpine from Russian troops. Weeks of heavy fighting have heavily damaged this suburb of Kiev. Eric Mock says the Slavic Gospel Association had an office in Irpine as well as a seminary with 830 students. Many displaced people took refuge in the seminary building, but Russian soldiers destroyed it with mortar fire. Pray for an end to the invasion and that many people would find hope in Jesus. And desperation grows in Afghanistan. 95% of the population goes without enough food to eat every day. Earlier this week, Taliban leaders announced that girls older than 12 could no longer attend school and international media is off the air. The Taliban is back to its old ways, including persecution. Each week, MNN's sister ministry, PrayerCast, features Afghan believers on its new podcast called One Voice. Subscribe at our website and commit to praying for the body of Christ in Afghanistan. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. And we're back here on Prophecy Today, a program that looks at current events in the light of biblical prophecy. This is the segment of the program where we typically look at news from around the Middle East, and we call it our Middle East News Update. And to do that, we have our normal broadcast partner, David Dolan. David, thank you for joining us today. Glad to hear I'm normal, Rick. God bless. (laughs) Well, David, I use normal in the best sense of the word. Well, the first thing that I want to get started talking about, Dave, is in relation to Israel. They are seeing an increased wave of terrorism there. And David, really, they're going through a tough time right now, aren't they? Definitely, Rick. It's uh, been a very dramatic uh, couple weeks with uh, 11 people killed. I didn't say Israelis because two of them were Ukrainian workers that were shot dead by uh, a terrorist. Three separate major terror attacks, one in the south, the first one in Beersheba, a knife attack that left four dead and many others wounded. And then uh, two police officers uh, shot dead in Hadera, and that's in the uh, north of the country on Sunday night, and uh, all about 10 others were wounded. That was a rifle attack, M16 actually, by a Palestinian supporter of ISIS. The first attack was also carried out by an ISIS uh, activist, so they're on the stage again. And then, of course, we had on Tuesday another, again, shooting attack in B'nai Brak, just south of Tel Aviv, southeast of Tel Aviv, a mostly Orthodox city, I might add. And um, a guy went around just shooting at random whoever he could. And as I said, two Ukrainian workers at a supermarket 
were uh, shot as they came to the door to see what was going on outside, hearing all the people screaming and et cetera. And they were killed. And the the gunman was shot to dead himself by an Israeli Arab Christian uh, paramilitary soldier, uh, the border police. Then there's been about 10 other attacks. There was an attack on Thursday. Uh, uh, Israeli was stabbed in the back by a, a Palestinian with a screwdriver. And he was shot dead immediately by just another passenger. And that's what uh, Prime Minister Bennett asked the Israeli public to do uh, earlier in the week. He said, we're basically at war. And by the way, they've given a name to all of this. They're calling it wave breaker, which means, you know, to try to break the waves of terrorism that they see coming. And the intelligence people say they know of a large number of pending attacks on top of this. So uh, they're trying to break that up. But uh, the prime minister said, get your guns out. If you have a permit, carry them with you at all time. Soldiers, you carry your rifles and and other arms at all times, whether you're on duty or not. And uh, anybody else that wants to help, help. He actually said, we're looking for civilian volunteers to beef up the patrols on our streets. And these have been going on forever. I've been involved in myself and many friends over the years. But they're asking for more people to come out and and help in that way. And of course, in response to all of this, the army has been stepping up its activities. They've put in a draft, Rick, which I think is very significant, indicating again that they may think a, a second Ramadan war, as it were, is coming. Now, that may be confusing to people since last year that war was in May. And this year, Ramadan is actually starting this evening. Uh, around uh, the world. So um, why is it sooner? Well, every uh, year, Ramadan, as you know, moves back two or three weeks. Uh, The Muslim calendar is a sliding calendar. It isn't a fixed calendar. And so um, this is the first time in many years that we've had the coincidence of Ramadan coming with Passover. And of course, Passover begins on Good Saturday, uh, the evening before Easter this year. David, you mentioned Ramadan as a reason or possible motivation for these uh, escalation and terror attacks. Is this something that you see as a concerted effort across the country, or is this basically just the inevitable consequence of the rhetoric that is typically used in the uh, Palestinian community and in the Muslim world in general? Well, at first, it was thought about two, three weeks ago when this uh, spate began that it was random, that it was just the usual, sadly to say, terrorism that we get, and it always increases uh, in the spring and when the weather heats up, et cetera, like wars do everywhere. So there's that. But then they uh, they noticed there's this attack in the south, in the center of the country, and in the north. And then Islamic Jihad came out and said they were in a full state of war. They were calling their uh, comrades, their forces, to be ready for war. Hamas made a similar statement. So it's looking like a more concerted, serious effort. And probably Iran is behind that, because even though Iran is not a, a backer of ISIS so much, they certainly are Islamic Jihad and Hamas, and that they may have uh, given some orders to step up attacks against Israel during uh, during the month of Ramadan. And there's another factor this year, Rick, and that is the war in Ukraine. Uh, Various Israeli analysts have pointed out that the world's attention is pretty much on Europe right now for good reasons. And 
the leaders are all conveying about that and, uh, you know, et cetera. And so the Middle East is lower down on the burner and maybe the Palestinians can get away with a higher level of violence than they would otherwise. So we'll see. But it looks like it may be an organized effort, Rick, or at least becoming an organized effort. Uh, Interesting to me, David, the Palestinian Authority Chairman Mahmoud Abbas did issue a condemnation of the attack, the one that took place at B'nai Barak. This seems a little bit out of character for Abbas, does it not? Well, he did it, I think, because uh, King Abdullah of Jordan asked him to. And um, we had uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, met with Abbas on Sunday up in Ramallah and then in midweek. Uh, King Abdullah made his first uh, visit to the land, to Israel. Of course, Ramallah is in what they would call Palestine, but um, the first uh, ever uh, since he's become king. And that was followed up, by the way, by the Israeli president, um, Herzog, Isaac Herzog, going to Amman, the first official state visit by a president of the United States to neighboring Jordan. So that was important. But Abdullah has been calling for some weeks for calm. He's been warning that the situation could easily get out of control and that another war uh, at the present time would probably be more intense, he said, than the one last May, that, of course, we had thousands of rockets pouring into Israel and and all of that going on. So it seems that it was more pressure from him that caused uh, But, you know, at the same time, the PA's rhetoric, as I just said, uh, one of their members issued a statement in the middle of March that there'll be holy war if uh, Jews try to pray on the Temple Mount. So they're talking out of both sides of their mouth, as they usually do. And Hamas and Islamic Jihad aren't even pretending. In fact, they put up a web page uh, to call the B'nai B'rak killer a hero, a martyr, a shahid in Arabic. And, uh, you know, they're celebrated. That was a municipality where the terrorists came from, put that up in Umul Faham. So it's just a terrible situation. And uh, and it's looking like uh, the people are going to are vigilant and they're aware that the situation is is tense. But, you know, they just like a peaceful Passover, for goodness sake. And the Christians, a peaceful Easter. The Arab uh, soldier was a Christian, as I said, that uh, shot dead the terrorists of B'nai Brak and his funeral was held on Thursday up in Nazareth, and uh, Arabs from all over the country came, and they were all pretty condemnatory. But then again, the Arab Christians don't support terrorism for the most part. A few do, but most don't. And uh, the Muslims, on the other hand, it seems most do. Well, David, for my final question, I would like to get your opinion. I know you're not the prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I'd like to know what you think is going to happen during this time of the year, this unique situation where we're going to have Ramadan, Easter, and Passover all taking place at the same time in the city of Jerusalem. Well, I think it will be miraculous if we go through this uh, spring and summer without a, a major war, Rick. I hate to say that, but uh, the fact that the warfare is spreading uh, not very far away to the north in Europe is not good. The tensions in Syria are very high, and Iran is continuing all its nefarious activities, and in Yemen, and on and on. So uh, I I think it's very likely we'll at least see a stepped-up Palestinian assault, whether it's a full uprising or not. Uh, they're saying that this time they're not hoping that just people in mass, Palestinians in mass, will go out into the streets, but that they, it'll be a more military action. There will be more 
uh, targeted terror attacks by professional trained terrorists, that sort of thing going on. But Iran could easily jump into that fray and uh, make it a much wider war. So we'll just have to see. But uh, the Lord's in control, and that's what we know. And we know that these uh, end days are going to have wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and the other things. And so it's happening. But uh, as I wrote on Facebook earlier this week, the Lord's throne remains unshakable in the heavens, unshakable, untouchable. And we've got to uh, remember that he is, as it says in the Bible, Nahum, he is the stability of our times. Well, David, that's an excellent thought to end this interview on. We appreciate you coming on. We do have that assurance that God is in control, and that's what should bring us hope and peace, and that's why we study Bible prophecy. Well, thank you for being with us this week, and we'll talk to you soon, David. Glad to do it, Rick. God bless. Great interview, Rick. And I love that thought, David. God's throne is unshakable. It's our stability in this time in which we're living. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, Winky Madad in Israel right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of biblical prophecy. We are certainly glad that you have joined us today as we seek to look at events taking place around the world right now, especially in Ukraine and Eastern Europe, but also in Israel and the Middle East. Our goal is to look at those events and put them in a proper perspective and give you an accurate portrayal of what is going on in the world today. And in order to do that, we have broadcast partners that we trust, and we know that you trust them too. Our next broadcast partner today is Winky Madad. He's an American-born Israeli journalist and author who's been living in Israel since 1970. He contributes to many different media outlets and news outlets across the country. Uh, We are honored to have him with us today. Thank you for joining us, Winky. Thank you again for having me on. Winky, when I asked you to be on the program today, one of the first things I asked you is, are you staying safe? We just got off the line with uh, Dave Dolan, and we do realize that there are many things taking place in Israel right now. So, Winky, are you staying safe there right now through this recent upsurge in terrorism? Well, I myself am physically safe, and so is my family. Uh, I have a married daughter uh, who lives just south of Shiloh at a place called Ofra. We're all okay here. Uh, Of course, what the situation is, is that there is high terror and low terror. Every day, there are probably about two dozen instances of stone throwing or throwing paint at a car 
and every once in a while something a little bit more serious. Thank God, nothing comparison to shooting, but occasional Molotov cocktails as well. So that sort of goes under the radar as if it's acceptable, low intensity level of violence. And recently, of course, this past week and a half now, we've had three severe terror instances. You could say there are only a very few Arabs who were involved in, in causing it, uh, but the death and the character of just blindly shooting people, not specifically, for example, as is used in guerrilla warfare, attacking police stations or army bases or something like that, but seeking out civilians. This is a horrific type of quote-unquote uh, war of liberation. And in this last instance at B'nai Brak, just outside of Tel Aviv, we had two Jews, two Ukrainian Slav, Slavic, I'm not quite sure, the Orthodox Church, I would presume they were members of, and an Israeli Christian Arab who were killed, which is all of Israel together in that. And so uh, it has shaken people, I, I cannot deny. Winky, from your viewpoint, what is causing this escalation at this particular time? I am not quite sure because fortunately or unfortunately, as the case may be, all the terrorists were shot dead, including one today who just walked onto a bus near Gush Etzion uh, Center at a place called El Azar and just picked, that, picked up a, s- a screwdriver he had with him and started stabbing someone with it. Uh, he was shot dead too. So basically we have four instances of terror in the past week and a half. Uh, so we can't ask them. We don't know. I could surmise that both the Palestinian National Authority, Fatah and Hamas in Gaza, are pumping up this Ramadan aspect of Islam in which it's the best month to attack your enemies, right? Most other religions have celebrations of thanking God and and seeking to improve the lot of man and a little bit of salvation, a little bit of belief, a little bit of good deeds. Ramadan can also be the month in which uh, Islamists are urged to attack the enemies. Um, So... uh, is it from within the Arab society or, or the Islamic Arab society, to be more specific? Or is it perhaps um, uh, social media platforms uh, that are pumping this up and people are getting uh, excited? Or is it the fact that Israeli media is making a big deal of this? The past three weeks already, they've been, what's going to happen during Ramadan? Because, of course, last year was the Ramadan intifada, shall we call it, and when there was a short, brief war, I would call it, with, with Gaza. So it's like you never know where it's coming from, what the cause is. I, I admit uh, a little bit of ignorance on this one. Well, Winky, what you're saying about Ramadan actually escalating the tensions there is interesting considering the fact that in a recent visit with President Herzog of Israel, the King of Jordan, King Abdullah, has said that he's actually calling for Israel to loosen their security restrictions around the Temple Mount during Ramadan. Well, Israel had intended to do so, and I'm sure it's going to try to do its best to afford as many uh, as possible to come and worship. Usually, of course, the big days are Friday, but also during the week, so much so that uh, Jewish visitors have their afternoon hour canceled during the month of Ramadan and probably during the last 10 days or so, no one uh, other than Muslims will be able to go up on the Temple Mount. 
this was a new thing about two or three years ago, and now it's all of a sudden the Arabs are claiming this is an historic status quo. Of course, not exactly true, but the real problem here is that I recently saw, after the visit of Herzog, uh, a press release from Jordan uh, saying Israel is violating the st- historic status quo, is allowing Jews to be provocative, and all this language which you don't have to use. Uh, Jews do not go into mosques. The entire courtyard or compound or whatever you want to call it is not a mosque. It's in a walled area. You have buildings inside that are used as mosques. And just like Arabs, or I should say Muslims, in Paris or New York spread out their prayer mats on the sidewalks or even in the streets, and I presume many of the listeners have seen these pictures over the years, uh, but for example, near the Arc de Triomphe in, in, in Paris, uh, you can do that inside the Temple Mount. But the mosque itself is Al-Aqsa, which is in the south. Jews don't go in there. And they make up things, and then they get angry at the things they make up. And then when we complain, either they kill us, or they throw stones at us, or as King Abdullah has done, is pronounced statements calling it provocative. It, it just doesn't make logical sense. Well, King Abdullah also met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas this week, and in that meeting, he called for no more unilateral steps in Jerusalem or on the Temple Mount, and said that Jordan will always back its, quote, Palestinian brothers, unquote. As you know, the country of Jordan controlled the Temple Mount from 1948 until 1967 before the city was unified. In my mind, it's an interesting comparison as to how the Jordanians managed the Temple Mount and Israel is now managing the Temple Mount, isn't it? Yes, of course. Uh, No Jew could go to the Western Wall uh, during the 19 years of the illegal Jordanian occupation of Judea and Samaria. Uh, But the world doesn't remember that. And and you bring it up and you're accused of being living in the past or some silly thing like that. And that's the problem we have with uh, arguing arguing over these issues. But the most important thing is that we have a peace treaty with Jordan since 1994. And Article 9, and I think I've probably mentioned it on the program before, speaks about freedom of religion, freedom of worship, um, people getting together, you know, uh, enjoying the fact that each religion has rights uh, in Jerusalem. And if I understand Jordan, they're saying, oh, we didn't mean that Jews could actually visit the Temple Mount or even open up a psalter or taking out a a prayer book and, and saying a few prayers in an open area or off on the side. That's what we didn't mean that when we signed that. And of course, either they didn't mean it or Israel is not holding Jordan to that article number nine. So again, when I was growing up in America, you know, watching those old Westerns and cowboys and Indians, you know, man speak with forked tongue. I think uh, King Abdullah has uh, uh, a lot to learn about not doing that because it's not helping peace. It's not helping coexistence. It's not helping uh, a, a sense of moderation in between the two peoples, even though we have a peace treaty. Oh, Winky, we appreciate you clearing that up. Well, one final question that I'd like to get to. Prime Minister Bennett uh, referred to the area that we refer to as Judea and Samaria because that is its biblical name. 
he referred to it as the West Bank, which is more of a political name because it's the West Bank of Jordan, not the West Bank of Israel. And it would seem to imply that that is Jordanian territory. Uh, does this signify some type of shift in Prime Minister Bennett's thinking? I don't know if it uh, signals a shift in his administration. It signals a shift in his mindset, perhaps, his own personal mindset. But let's go back. He was speaking to together with Secretary, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. He was reading a text, so we know that it wasn't off the cuff. So either he did not go over the text himself before reading it, or did not realize what he was reading, and perhaps we could blame a spokesperson or a speechwriter, and you know we could be generous in saying he was talking the terms that Secretary Blinken would understand, because that's what all America talks about, the West Bank. But he could have said the West Bank, or as we say, Judea and Samaria. So either he was being sloppy or irresponsible, or as you indicated, perhaps he does make a shift change because he's in this coalition of leftists and, and Arabs that may be affecting his thinking. I know him personally. He's a brilliant person when it comes to technology and marketing and computing. Maybe he's just didn't realize the importance of sticking at least to the message that this is the Jewish national homeland, no matter what happens politically. And it's unfortunate that he let that slip out of his mouth. Well, as my dad always used to say, words have meaning. And uh, in this case, they certainly do. They have a political meaning, so we need to pay attention to them. Well, Winky, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your insight onto so many different matters. We appreciate all that you do for us here on Prophecy Today. Well, as I always say, thank you very much for having me on the program, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Well, Winky Medad is our go-to guy. As I always say, uh, when we want to talk about living in the land, he lives in Shiloh. Uh, he really gives us that background as to what is taking place. Uh, he's, a, he's a political expert. He's our pundit. He really does give us information about what is taking place there. Well, we are talking uh, about Israel, and we're going to switch gears here in just a moment. But before we do that, I've got Dr. Richard Schmidt on the line with me. Uh, welcome to the program today, Dr. Schmidt. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. It's great to have you with us. Now, Dr. Richard Schmidt, he's a pastor in Union Grove, Wisconsin. He is a prophecy. He's got a prophecy ministry. Uh, he's going to a conference this next weekend. And uh, I'm very intrigued at what you will be speaking on at the conference. Well, I always enjoy doing uh, prophecy conferences. And uh, this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I'll be at Victory Baptist Church in Maple Grove, Minnesota. And we're going to be speaking on the Olivet Discourse, probably one of the most misunderstood prophetic passages even among Christians. Uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke 21, all speak about uh, what Jesus literally told about the prophetic future. And uh, the misunderstanding that often comes is when people are reading the Olivet Discourse, they're, they're thinking it's looking at the rapture, but it's actually looking mm -hmm. at the second coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. So there's many, many different signs which God lays out, Jesus himself lays out in Matthew chapter 24, and all those signs are very compatible. They line up with the 
seals, trumpets, bowls, mm-hmm. judgments that are listed in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 16. And it's just a marvelous study. What we're seeing happening uh, even in our current time, our contemporary time, a lot of the things that uh, Matthew 24 talks about can be mistaken as being those signs being implemented today. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're this has been a 2,000 years of <laughs> seeing similar things take place mm-hmm. as are listed in Matthew 24. But when that literal tribulation time comes, that seven-year tribulation spoken about in Daniel 9:27, uh, the things that we've seen are nothing compared what will take place in the prophetic future. And of course, you and I both believe in an imminent rapture, which means that there are no other prophecies to be fulfilled before the rapture takes place. And uh, I I think this will be a great conference and a great explanation for folks to help them to understand Bible prophecy. Well, the reason I had Dr. Schmidt on today is because as a pastor and as a former sheriff of Milwaukee County in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Uh, He's very politically uh, attuned to what's going on, and he also has the heart of a pastor and and leading his people and answering questions about what's taking place. And as we have all been watching the news lately, we do see that there is this battle in the Supreme Court, but it's much larger than that. It's it's the state of Florida. It's the governor of Florida. It's uh, Disney World. It's uh, the president of the United States making funding available for transgender children and education of that. And so today, Dr. Schmidt, I, I guess uh, with our Supreme Court nominee, when uh, she was asked, can you provide a definition for the word woman? And she replied, I cannot in this context. I'm not a biologist. Why does it matter what a Supreme Court justice believes about gender identity? Well, this has been a a huge issue for many years. And I want to start out by prefacing this, that we're looking at a difference between medical conditions versus learned behavior or, or versus social engineering. So what we're looking at is when we're looking at the current things that are happening in our country and some that have happened around the world that are like-minded, we're seeing a move away from normal male-female at birth, and now we're seeing a tremendous amount of education, a lot of uh, political things that are coming out, a lot of things on the media coming out that are really pushing trying to get young people, even in grade school, young grade school age, to question whether they're a male or question whether they're a female. So the issue here that we're going to look at is not about those, uh, about 1.7% of Americans are born not conforming to, if you will, the normal standards. So Mm. there are medical conditions that do come. What we're concerned about much more than that is the learned behavior and the social engineering taking place. So what are the repercussions of that? There's multiple things that when we examine them, it's it's becoming a real problem, and most Americans are aware of it. So we've got a, a little boy who all of a sudden decides he is not a boy and wants to use the girl's bathroom, or we up that to teenagers, or we up that to young adults or adults. And all of a sudden we have people who definitely have different genitalia and so forth going into washrooms and locker rooms and showers, and that's a problem. 
And it's not because it's of a medical condition. It's because someone said, well, I identify as something else. Well, the problem is, are they truly identifying as something else, which I would find highly suspect, or is it simply I want to be in an opposite-sex bathroom mm. and enjoy whatever? So that those are questions that have to be asked. Uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked this question, or basically made this statement. She said, I'm uh, basically known as a liberal icon and lifetime advocate for women, wrote in the majority opinion that physical differences between men and women are endearing. So even the Supreme Court, prior to what's taking place now with uh, the, the current nominee, uh, the Supreme Court, and uh, one of the most liberal justices, made a statement that, yes, there's a major difference between men and women. Uh, there's uh, certain things that are basically going to be challenged, which the feminist movement or the movement that's tried to give ladies a standing is is actually going to suffer from this. But people know the difference between male and female, and now all of a sudden after 6,000 years of human history, according to the Bible, or as most of uh, the liberals, if you will, that don't believe the Bible, millions and millions of years mm -hmm. in their vernacular, of course, which we wouldn't subscribe to, but now all of a sudden we've come to 2021, 2022, and all of a sudden this becomes a major crisis where uh, gender identity has become a major, major issue. The thing that really is disturbing is they're pushing this now for minors. In other words, the schools, some parents even, some organizations, the media, which is a constant influx of information, are encouraging young people to question whether they're a literal male or female. Not based on medical issues, but really based on, well, how do you feel today? And this important report from the Health and Human Services Office of Population Affairs makes it very clear that if you do hormone therapy on children or early adolescents, that if they determine, well, when they get older, maybe I made a mistake, that's only partially reversible. What's even more sad is when you have surgeries taking place, which are not necessary, gender-affirming surgeries, these are non-reversible surgeries. In other words, they talk about top surgery or the top part of, a, of the torso or the bottom surgery, facial features being changed, mm -hmm. all of these things which our society is in pushing people to do, challenging to people to do, this is a real problem in our society, and it is very concerning when it comes to what is a male and female versus what did God design us to be. Right. And I, again, we're talking to Dr. Richard Schmidt. He's a pastor, former uh, sheriff of Milwaukee, so he has a lot of experience in dealing with these things and guiding his uh, the, uh, the parishioners in his church as he's shepherding his sheep, helping the community to understand Dr. Schmidt, what is the real agenda behind the current bombardment of gender identity issues? Well, there's a multiplicity of articles and books that have been written mainly by those that subscribe to the socialist and Marxist agenda. These things that are taking place are just one more step in the process to try and take America away from being, if you will, a Christian nation down to uh, one that is not based on 
the rule of law, but once that's based on socialism and Marxism, uh, this is just a, a constant issue that we're seeing. Just for example, an individual named William Foster towards Soviet America wrote exactly about these things, uh, taking away the religious and the patriotic features of our society. So we're just seeing the, the real agenda is change what's normal, fight everything that's normal, upset, if you will, people so that they lose track of what truly are major issues, and, and now we're getting sidetracked on these. It's very interesting that out of 350 million Americans, there's only 0.34% of Americans that fall into this category of wanting to, if you will, change who they are, according to a recent CBS report called U.S. Passports. <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah, will include option for ex-gender. So the passports are going to be changed based on a 0.34% of the population. All these things are simply pushing, pushing, pushing in the media, in our face, if you will, trying to change an America that was based on biblical principles and the rule of law to something quite contrary. How should Christians and Bible-believing churches react to the gender identity issue? Well, I think there's four key things that we need to do. Number one, you need to write your elected officials and make it very clear that uh, especially pastors, Christians, those that embrace a conservative biblical standard, write your elected officials and take a stand on it. Nothing wrong with that. We should do that. Our First Amendment rights uh, ask us to do those things, uh, redress. In other words, make a complaint about what's taking place. Second, pastors and Christian leaders need to stand for biblical truth. Now, always speak the truth in love, according to Ephesians 4.15, but our, our standards, which are 100% biblical, need, need to be made known. Mm -hmm. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's a standard. And again, we're not talking about medical conditions. We're talking about individuals that are being forced or challenged into, if you will, changing their identity. So speak the truth in love, and finally, share the life-transforming gospel. Government never changed the heart. Only God can do that. Preach the gospel as much as possible. Share the gospel. Share your faith with people. These four things are, if you will, the mainstays of what can change the tide for America. You know, as we're looking at these issues, Dr. Richard Schmidt, uh, pastor, uh, former uh, elected official uh, and, and a political government, um, as we're looking at these issues, does the gender identity issue have a nexus to Bible prophecy? Well, absolutely it does. When we, when we look at several passages, and we could just go to the book of Second Timothy chapter 3, it talks about uh, in uh, verse 1, in the last days perilous times will mm. come. Verse 3, unloving, without self-control. Verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. God made it clear that in the last days, uh, and again, there's no signs that have to take place, but right. here we are. We're coming up to these things. We're seeing our country change. All of a sudden, in our generation, these become huge things. A uh, couple quick ones, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Second mm. uh, Timothy 4, 3, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. 
Well, what is sound doctrine? The Bible made it very clear, Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Male and female, that's what God created. We're seeing in these end times, if you will, as we prepare for the rapture of the church, these things are taking place. It's a signal. <laughs> Jimmy, as you stated, we're waiting for the imminent return. I'm thinking it could happen at any moment because I can't <laughs> believe how bad things are getting. It's sure. And you have presented a biblical argument. You know, what strikes me is the, the percentage of people that are affecting change on the passport, and yet here we have the percentage of Christians in the United States and worldwide, and it seems like sometimes we, uh, and I know that you know we can get sidetracked by fighting political issues, but really, I like what you said about sharing the life-transforming gospel, uh, speaking the truth and love, and presenting your argument. Uh, really given a, a defense for what you believe, for defending the faith and uh, uh, sharing with people God's redeeming love and his plan for mankind to have a restored relationship with them and uh, his uh, where they a decision as to what they will make for them, uh, which affects eternity. Dr. Schmidt, thank you so much for being with us today, for clearly stating this out, um, put it in a, in a way that as responsible believers in Jesus Christ, followers of Christ, of Christianity, uh, to be able to talk clearly and to give the gospel uh, to a lost and dying world. Thank you, and we'll be praying for you and your ministry in the future. Thank you, and God bless. Dr. Richard Schmidt. Well, we need to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. and along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And in the last hour, talking about the issues that uh, we're facing today as believers in this time period. Rick, you know, it's great to have a resource where people can go to learn more about Bible prophecy if they wanted to. That's right, Jimmy. And we do have our website at prophecytoday.com. You know, we always say we look at current event in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, if you go to our website, you'll see that we focus on what's taking place in the world. And even especially if you go to our bookstore and you look at some of the content that we have, a lot of teaching from our father, the late Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, many prophecy series that can give you an in-depth knowledge uh, of God's prophetic word and how we can relate it to our world today. And Jimmy, we're adding new content all the time. We added a, several new uh, series this week, and in the future, we're even going to add digital content so you could download PDFs and MP3s as well. This is a great place to learn about Bible prophecy. It's also a way that you can show your support for our ministry by purchasing these products. Yes, uh and we sure appreciate everyone that goes to our website. And uh, we do thank the radio stations for putting us on, for carrying our programs, and uh, to help uh, educate the body of Christ as we are trying to understand why our world is acting as it is and what we're doing today. Well, we're going to get back to our legacy series. And as we come to our study today, we want to know more about the Garden of Eden. That's where we left off last week. Remember last time we were talking about and we were thinking about the description of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. Many people believe that the Garden of Eden is in Iraq, Rick. And we've, we've talked about going there, but it's not there. Uh, but they think that because of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. 
A closer look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, reveals to us that there is only one river in the Garden of Eden. This is key to understanding where the Garden was at the time of creation and where it is today. The Garden of Eden is key to understanding Bible prophecy. Let's get back to that one river in the Garden of Eden, the Gihon River. Rick, you and I have been in that water. Uh, we've been there. We have a video. If people want to see that, where Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father, is teaching from right above the water of the Gihon Springs. Well, without further delay, let's get to our legacy series today. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 1 as Dr. Jimmy DeYoung continues the legacy series. I do know where the Gihon is because I read 1 Kings chapter 1. Do you not remember that when King David was on his deathbed, having served 40 years as the king, the second king of Israel, it's time now to anoint Solomon to be the third king of Israel? One of his younger sons tries to usurp that power and take it away from Solomon? What does King David say? He said to his wife from his deathbed, Honey, go get the servant. Tell him to go down to the Gihon and get some water so I can come and I can anoint this Man, Solomon, my son, to be king. We reenacted that. I have a video of the three-part on the city of Jerusalem where the archaeologists studying the city of David where King Solomon had his home, where King David had his home, where the location was of the city of Jerusalem, original site. And uh, he's studying all the archaeological activities going on there. And so we reenacted. We sent our guide when we were doing a television program down to the Gihon to get some water. And we reenacted the anointing, pouring of the water on the hands, just like King David did to Solomon, who became king. And then we went down with our television cameras. And down there, that archaeologist told me that his son, who's a Navy SEAL in the Israeli Defense Force, put his scuba diving equipment on, swam up underneath the Dome of the Rock, and gushing out of the ground the headwaters for the river that flowed into the Pool of Shalom. You know the Pool of Shalom. That's where when Jesus put the mud in a man's eyes, Jesus said, go there and wash him out. And you'll be able to see the water oblations for the activities at the temple. They would get the water from the Pool of Shalom, which is the Gihon River flowing in there. That's the river that was in the Garden of Eden, the location in the center of the earth, the city of Jerusalem. That's where it all was. That's where it started, the inauguration. By the way, Man was in there. And God used the Garden of Eden to provide for everything he needed. Oh, you know what? They were vegetarians. You know why? Death had not come into existence yet. You have to kill an animal to make a hamburger, right? Or a hot dog. Or a sausage sandwich. Death had not come into existence yet. So they were vegetarians. That's why God planted the garden with all kind of trees. The tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He mentioned those two, but there were other kinds of trees. Beautiful, wonderful foliage. He could live among it. His habitation was set up. He didn't have to worry about it. He was naked. He didn't even know it. He didn't even recognize Eve. She was naked. They didn't have to worry about that. They didn't need clothes. What do you need? You need a house to live in. You need a food to eat. You need clothing. That's all you need. God provided it all in the Garden of Eden. By the way, you know who else was in the Garden of Eden? Lucifer. Oh, he was not the devil at that time. He was a very prominent cherub. Go to the 28th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel 28. Now, I know the first part of Ezekiel 28 is talking about the king of Tyre. But starting in verse 13, no longer is it talking about the king of Tyre. It's talking about Lucifer in the Garden of Eden. Notice what it says in verse 13. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Notice the last part of verse 13. In thee, in the day that thou wast created, I brought you into the garden of Eden. You were there. Verse 14. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain. Notice that phrase, holy mountain of God. It's used 18 times in the Old Testament. The holy mountain of God is a synonym with the words Garden of Eden. It's the same location. The holy mountain of God, the Garden of Eden, that's where you were. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 15, and thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created. Lucifer, the most prominent of all cherubs ever created. There were three kinds of angels, as best we know. There were the seraphim, that's Isaiah chapter 6. There was the cherubim, that's Ezekiel chapter 1. And there were the throne room angels, which is a compilation of both of those, the seraphim and the cherubim, and that's Revelation chapter 4. But those are the three types of angels there were. And he was the most prominent of all angels ever created. How many were created? I don't know. I think about 12 billion of them. Because as they tell us, the people who do demographics, they say there's as many people alive today as there's lived since creation. So 6 billion people alive today, 6 billion people have been alive since creation. That's 12 billion people. And the book of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says, what? We're not angels created to minister unto you? So I think at least for every person that's ever lived, one angel was created. I don't care what the number is. There was a big number. The Bible says in chapter 5 of Revelation... 10,000 times 10,000, that's 100 million. And then there is 200 million, chapter 9 of the book of Revelation, that indeed were put in a prison, the abyss, for a period of time. So a number of angels created. And the most magnificent, the most beautiful of all of them was Lucifer. And he was in the Garden of Eden. There's Adam. There's Lucifer. There's Jesus Christ. By the way, how do I know it's Jesus Christ? Well, he created everything. Number two, the Bible tells us that no man can see God and live. And you can't see the Holy Spirit because he's a spirit. The only person of the Godhead you can see is Jesus Christ. It was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. He walked in the garden. He was with them. They had fellowship together. What else could you want? All the provision for man. The prominence of Lucifer and the production of Jesus Christ as he brought all of this into existence. That's the inauguration of the Garden of Eden. But hold it. There was insurrection in the Garden of Eden also. He still got chapter 28 of Ezekiel. Look at the last part of that verse 15 that I did not read. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. Boy, that answers a lot of questions. Where does evil come from? Where does sin come from? Did God create evil? Did God bring sin into existence? If he created Lucifer... And then Lucifer had sin found in him, iniquity in him. Yes, okay, God was responsible. But God did not bring evil and sin into existence. 
It was Lucifer. He's the one that sinned. We'll look at chapter 14 of Isaiah in a moment. We'll see where he exercised his free will. You see, angels have free wills, just like human beings have free wills. The only problem is an angel can only exercise his free will one time and then he's locked in it. Human beings can exercise their free will a number of times. They can continually change their mind. An angel only makes one bad decision. Exercising the free will, locked into it. But look what happened. Iniquity was found within Lucifer. Go down here to uh, uh, verse uh, 16. But in the multitude of thy merchandise, thou have filled with the, in the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. See, the holy mountain of God, synonymous with the Garden of Eden. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, O most prominent angel in all of creation, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty, pride. Let me tell you what I think happened. Here's what I think happened. And this is sanctified speculation, so mark it down. It's not scripture because we don't have it actually written out that way. But let me tell you what I think happened. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, God gave dominion to Adam and Eve. He made them king and queen over all the creation. That was on the sixth day of creation. What happened on the first day of creation when God brought Lucifer into existence? He put him in the place of promise over all the creation. And five days later, who's this upstart? Adam and Eve. What are they doing? They're taking my prominence away. I'm the one prominent over all the creation. Who are they? I think the pride of his beauty and his position brought him down. And so you know what he said? I will. Go to chapter 14 of the book of Isaiah. Verse 12, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou come down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. You know where that is? The mount of the congregation in the sides of the north? That's the city of Jerusalem. Psalm 48, verse 2. That's a definition of Jerusalem. And Lucifer says, not only will I rise above the stars of God, not only will I be equal with God, he says it in a moment, not only will I do that, I will be worshipped in Jerusalem. Remember what I told you? Abomination and desolation. Antichrist, the representative of Satan, walks into the temple, sits down in the throne room, and what does Second Thessalonians 2, 4 say? He claims to be God. I see abomination and desolation. I will be worshipped in Jerusalem. Notice what else he says here. Verse 14, I will send above the heights of the clouds and I will be like the Most High God. You're not going to be like the Most High God. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And there's insurrection in the Garden of Eden. But what's he going to do now? He needs a subtle strategy. He's got to take down This king and queen, the one who has dominion. Go to chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. 
Well, let's stop by chapter 1, verse 31. Let me show you something. There was no Satan in the first six days of creation. How do I know that? I read the text. Chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. I like the Hebrew flavor to that. Abundantly excellent. It was abundantly excellent. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So in the sixth day of creation, those first six days, there was no evil angel activity because there were no evil angels because everything was abundantly excellent. Indeed, there were no evil angels in the Garden of Eden in that first six days of creation. As I said, everything was abundantly excellent at the end of the six days of creation. There was no evil present. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. We'll return to that next week when we come back and we look at Satan's subtle strategy for trying to destroy God and his creation. We'll take a break, and when we come back, a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Ukrainian forces say they've retaken the city of Irpin from Russian troops. Weeks of heavy fighting have heavily damaged this suburb of Kiev. Eric Mock says the Slavic Gospel Association had an office in Irpin as well as a seminary with 830 students. Many displaced people took refuge in the seminary building, but Russian soldiers destroyed it with mortar fire. Pray for an end to the invasion and that many people would find hope in Jesus. And desperation grows in Afghanistan. 95% of the population goes without enough food to eat every day. Earlier this week, Taliban leaders announced that girls older than 12 could no longer attend school and international media is off the air. The Taliban is back to its old ways, including persecution. Each week, MNN's sister ministry, PrayerCast, features Afghan believers on its new podcast called One Voice. Subscribe at our website and commit to praying for the body of Christ in Afghanistan. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And Rick, for the last hour and a half, uh, we have been looking at issues that are confronting the body of Christ, that are confronting the world, really, and, and trying to figure out what really is happening and, and why it's taking place. And this is my favorite time of the program, where we take a look at the book. 
Well, that's right, Jimmy. We kind of bring it all together in this segment right here, and we talk about what all of our broadcast partners have brought to the table, and then look at the scripture and find out what it says. Well, the first thing I wanted to ask you about, Jimmy, or maybe you can help explain to our listeners, we talked with Ken Timmerman, and we talked about Russia, and of course, Russia is in the news Mm -hmm. every day. And I would love for you just to remind our listeners what is meant in Ezekiel 38 when it says Gog and Magog, and that those are two One's a personality, one's a place. Can you talk to our listeners about that? Yes. Well, we do know that Gog is the personality, and it's mentioned there. And at this moment, that would be Vladimir Putin. Of course, Magog comes from those uh, the division of nations, the beginning of nations in Genesis chapter 10, one of those sons of Jepeth. When they left that area, the area of Babel, they went to the north of the Black and Caspian Sea. Here's something, Rick, that that struck me. You know, we always talk about how mighty the Russian, the country of Russia, Vladimir Putin and his military, and we've talked about Ezekiel 38. But I think one of the things that we're seeing now is through this and how fast that the Russian government and the military really succumbed to you know, the little tiny nation of Ukraine that was hanging on for all of its worth, I am reminded of the fact that it's an alignment of nations because we always think that, you know, uh, Russia is going to be leading the way towards Israel. And it is true, but there's an alignment of nations led by one leader. And should that leader today, should this happen? And I believe it's going to take place in the first part of the tribulation period, perhaps within the the first month or two of the tribulation period, that seven-year period of time. It would be Vladimir Putin. But as we have talked about on this program, Vladimir Putin might not be around. But the alignment of nations that come, it's going to be Russia. It's going to be Iran. It will be Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan. It will be Turkey aligning with the king out of the north, which would be Syria and Egypt, plus the nations that are a part of the Abrahamic Accord that you talked about with David Dolan. Those nations that are meeting with Israel, they're going to come out. So it is an alignment. It's not just one nation, but is led by one man, not the Antichrist. It will be led by Gog, and then those nations will come against Israel. Jimmy, if you look at what's taking place in Russia right now, it like you said, it doesn't take much imagination to look at what's going to take place in the tribulation and then transfer mm-hmm. what's taking place in the world right now. Well, we had David Dolan on after that, and we and we spoke a lot about what's taking place in Israel with the terrorism, but we also talked about the Abraham Accords and a little bit of the peace summit. And no, Daniel 9 says that there's going to be a peace treaty on the table, but not confirmed. There is a lot of peace being talked in the Middle East, but none of it is really working right now, is it? You're absolutely right, Rick. You know, when you look at there are three peace treaties on the table right now, and it does, that word in Hebrew does say it, the Antichrist will come to confirm a peace agreement. We have the Camp David Accord, we have the Oslo Accord, and then there's the peace treaty that was signed with Jordan. Interestingly, all these countries are involved again right now, and they're meeting in Israel. And they will come out of a summit meeting, and they will come and they will decide that it's time to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, the map, uh, whatever you want to say. And this is where God steps in and protects the little tiny nation of Israel and the Jewish people. 
Winky, talk to us again about the strife that's taking place in Israel right now, the terrorism. This is something that the scriptures say is going to take place. Uh, Jerusalem specifically is going to be a cup of trembling in the future. Uh, We've talked about that so often in the past, and that's what Zechariah chapter 12 says. Um, They will become intoxicated with power. Uh, in the center of the earth, the, where the Garden of Eden is located. Yes, that's uh, where the trouble began all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. And it will be still the trouble until Jesus Christ will come back to the earth and rule and reign in the city of Jerusalem. As always, it was great to have Dr. Rich Schmidt on our program. He's a great friend of Prophecy Today, but he brought up some timely issues, issues that we're all dealing with. It seems like they're front and center in the news every day. Yes. You know, and here's the thing that I want us to understand as believers. Both Paul and Peter gave us instructions through giving instructions to the early church on how to live, what it's going to be like in these times. We do know from Matthew chapter 24 of what's going to take place during the tribulation period. But we as believers living in these last days, we are going to come into perilous times. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Deception is the number one item when you look at the end times. Uh, Satan, the master deceiver, is certainly coming on the scene. And then, of course, the time will come when they, referring to the world, people living now, will not endure sound doctrine. You know, the best way to overcome all of these things and to realize we do have the answer Um, We are to speak the love and truth. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, again, Paul's given us information. But speaking the truth in love, we need to share that life-transforming gospel. Only the gospel can transform the mind, uh, the spirit, the heart. um, And and it's so needed in our world today. I'm reminded of John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Rick, thanks so much for doing the program today with us and asking those tough questions. And, uh, you know, as we continue along, we're just trying to help the body of Christ to be prepared living in this world until the rapture takes place. And we know that that rapture could happen at any moment. And as I started out the program today, I looked at our theme, which was evil men and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as Timothy learned in the following verses in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he learned that he could have complete confidence in his salvation. That the scriptures bring salvation only when one places his faith in Christ Jesus. Jimmy, as uh, Dave Dolan said earlier today, God is in control. Our study of Scripture proves that, gives me a hope and assurance, that's for sure. Until next week, we'll see you. Keep studying God's Word, understand what's taking place, and the urgency of the hour and what it means to be able to give light into a dark world. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., along with Rick. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Thank you.